Again, we are in the Gospel of Luke. We're calling this Volume 3, and I'm happy to announce that we will finally complete the Gospel of Luke in this last kind of press to the end. And uh, it's hard to believe that we actually started this pre-COVID. I know it's felt like an eternity. You're like, Matt, it took us 20 years to do Luke. No, it was 2019 when we started the Gospel of Luke. We will end it in 2022, and it'll still probably be a pandemic. That's fine, though. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and get it done. And, and I love the Gospel of Luke for so many reasons, in part because we titled the series The Scandalous God, because what you see throughout the life of Jesus and the way he does things and the message he teaches is it's truly scandalous. It's not the way religion would write the story. He doesn't do things the way religion would say is a sensible way to magnify morality and goodness and the creed of God. But, but Jesus is God, and Jesus is showing us something about the Father and everything that he does. And certainly the story today does that in a beautiful and challenging fashion. In fact, Crystal just read the story to us that we're looking at. And, and this story is one of those unique ones that is commemorated, celebrated in art, music, writing. I mean, it's grafted into all sorts of things. And we traditionally call it the prodigal son. And, and I just want to say for the record right now that that is a terrible title it really is a terrible title. And you're going to see in a minute why I don't think it, it really fits. I, in fact, if anything, I think the story is meant to teach something completely other than just this label, the prodigal son. But maybe to get ourselves kind of in tune with that a little bit, I want to remind us of where we left off because it was just back in the summer, remember when things were warm and green and not covered with snow or flooding everywhere? Uh, that was the last time we were in this particular section of the Bible. And I, I want to return to it because uh, there is a context that's getting established because Jesus tells not only that story, but he tells a triad of stories in chapter 15, which is where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. And all of that's connected to a context. In other words, stories are told by Jesus because there was a circumstance that drove the storytelling. So if we were to start in chapter 15, verse 1, we see that context. It says in verse 1, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. But this made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, he was even eating with them. Now, here's the thing about this, right? Um, when you look at his life throughout the Gospel of Luke, you see that Jesus is incredibly compelling, right? So people who are living on the outside, in the margins, undesired, unwanted, unloved, for whatever reason, they are drawn to the person of Jesus, which is crazy because Jesus is God, right? So Jesus is holy, he's good, he's loving, and they're drawn. But religion looks at that, and they're repulsed by the idea, in fact, they're not only repulsed by the idea, but they're repulsed by the fact that Jesus welcomes such people, that he's willing to have this association with them, and so they're freaked out by it. Now, here's another part of the story that I think it's important to notice from that verse. It does not say former sinners or recovering sinners or even repentant sinners. It just says there's something about the person of Jesus that's so radical. These people with messed up, goofy, challenged lives were like, I want to hang with that guy. 
What he says and what he does, that draws my heart in. And this just reminds us of the fact of why Jesus is so scandalous, because there's this truth that, again, he comes to the marginalized, he comes to the messy, he comes to the morally broken, and they're the ones that are like, man, this is refreshing what this guy has to say, what he's all about. And I love it because what you see is that he is connecting with them. He's investing into them. He values them, befriends them, and even has this sense of affirmation around them because for him to sit and eat a meal with them is him saying to the masses, these are my friends, these are my people. I give them value and worth. But religion and its pride and its self-righteousness can't stomach this. So from it, Jesus then tells three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost or prodigal son. But here's why I don't think these stories should be titled that. And the Bible doesn't title those stories that way. We sort of added that to some degree. And even most Christians globally don't refer to these stories as lost things. Because when you see the stories, these are not about lost things, but these are about found things. And more important, the stories are about the one who goes to seek and find the lost things. In other words, it is a God who seeks and finds people. It's about people who seek and find God. That's the essence of these stories. And so what you see throughout is this relentless God who is driven in relationship to connect with broken people and make them whole. And so that's how the stories orbit. And so Jesus tells the first story And he says, basically, let me tell you about a man that had a hundred sheep. He says, if one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? See, Jesus is trying to get a point about what God cares about. So he says, you know what? Most ranchers, they would consider one lost sheep kind of an expected loss, but but that's not the way God works. He sees the value of every single one. He'll leave, even put at risk the 99 at times to go and find the one, and he seeks, and he looks, and he doesn't give up until he's discovered, and he cares for it again. Or he tells another story. He says, suppose a woman had 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light the lamp and sweep her entire house and search carefully again until she finds it? The stories are not about the bummer of losing things. The stories are about the bold pursuit of the one who seeks and doesn't stop seeking till he finds. And then when he finds, he celebrates. It says, and when he found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Very personal, sacrificial And he'll say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And the woman, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus says, there is joy in the presence of the angels when even one sinner repents. The stories are not about lost things. The stories are about a God who seeks and finds, and when he finds, he blows up in celebration. In fact, when it says there's this great joy in the presence of the angels in heaven, It's not saying the angels are the ones that are all pumped up. It's God himself that's all excited. He's the one in celebration. He's the one stoked because of these events. That's the picture of the story. It's God in the margins seeking and finding. And so Jesus is telling this 
And he's telling it to these religious leaders because they're looking at his scene with these people and they're asking themselves their little religious, self-righteous question of who would want these hookers and crooks and thugs in any way? And Jesus is saying, I know somebody who does. My father wants them. I want them. We want them. And so we are going after them. And so to make the point to kind of sour puss religion here, he tells a show-stopping story, the final in the triad. So to illustrate the point, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. So automatically, we see that this isn't just the prodigal son. This is a dad and two kids, now, I'm sure Jesus could have made the story with a bigger family. He could have had three sons, but then you have a middle child, and that complicates everything, so he left it too. I know because my middle child is going to sing a song in a little while. I know middle kids. They're awesome. But it's a dad and two sons. But here's the thing about the dad and two sons. They're all prodigals. Every one of them. Now, some of you are sitting there right now, and you're like, what you talking about, Willis? Because prodigal means something. Have you been just like polishing off the last of mama's eggnog mat? Like, why are you saying they're all prodigals here? Let, let me track this out a little bit. Let me show you. The, the word prodigal, we're pretty familiar with it in some contexts. It means wasteful or recklessly extravagant. And we're going to look at one of these sons and we're going to go like, that's exactly who he is. He's the prodigal. He's wasteful. He's recklessly extravagant. But there's other definitions for the word prodigal, such as giving or yielding profusely to be very generous to be lavish or lavishly abundant and so suddenly the word takes on this whole new nuance and meaning and so all three of the people in the story are in their own different way a prodigal there's one son who is lavish but he's lavish with his self-centered passions that's the younger son but then there's the other son, and he's lavish in his self-righteous pride. He can just dull that out at a moment's notice. But then there's the prodigal father, and the prodigal father is lavish with self-giving grace. Now, I, I, I tell you that at the very beginning of our time today because I want you to be looking for the prodigal in each. So as we go through the story, your, your brain's going, ah, that's prodigal. Oh, but that's a different prodigal. Oh no, that's a different prodigal still. I want us to look at it from that perspective. But the other thing I want us to do is I, make, I want us to make sure that as we're going through the story, we're asking ourselves the question, which prodigal am I? And, and, and even maybe in that to, to ask the question, am I a kind of prodigal that's unhealthy? And how does God want to help me become the kind of prodigal that is helpful and loving and healthy. And so as we move into this this morning, I want to give us a moment of silence where you can just pray to yourself, prepare your heart, and then I'll pray and we'll get right into the story. So let's just take a moment right now.
Jesus, you are the one that has access to our inner person in a way that probably we don't even have real access. You have authority and jurisdiction to bring things to mind, to confront us, to move us in a way that helps us to be more like you, more loving, more gracious, more compassionate, whatever it is. And and I ask that whatever lessons you have for us today that we will hear and whatever things you're asking us to do will do, not out of guilt or shame or force or manipulation, but because we're so moved and compelled by the grace that you show, the grace that you declare, and the grace that you want us to display. And so I ask that the story will speak into our lives, not just into our minds, but into our lives so that we're more dependent upon you and we are more like you in the world that we inhabit. We thank you, Jesus, for this story and the reminder that you are a scandalous God that does things very different than what we would anticipate and you do it in your grace. We thank you, Jesus, and love you in your name. Amen. Verse 12. One day, the younger of the two sons told his father, I want my share of your estate before you die. Just pause on that for a second. Imagine if your kid came to you and said, Mom, Dad, I want my share of all your hard-earned money before you die. You would probably say, perfect, let's make the first deposit, my boot into your butt. That's the very first and only deposit we will be making, right? Because you would hear that, and somebody's like, that's right, amen, right? So, so like, you, you hear that story, and automatically you go, man, you see the heart of this kid. You see the problem that's there. You see the complexity, and, and, and from that, it's offensive as a parent. But in their society, it was even more offensive because what this kid is, in essence, really doing is he's coming to his dad, and he's saying, do me a favor. Drop dead so that I can have some extra cash to spend. I want to go play. I want to go live. I want to do stuff. And the only way that's going to happen legally in our culture is if you kick the bucket and I get everything. So how about we accelerate this? You just fake your death and give me my stuff. Or at least you're willing to forgo all that you have. Give it to me so I can go and play. That's the spirit of this kid. And so he really is just wanting his dad to kick the bucket, move on, so he can play. What's amazing to me about this, though, is not that a kid would be selfish or self-interested or want to go and live it big and large. What surprises me is what the father decides to do. In the face of this, it says the father agreed. And listen closely. It says his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two Sons. So notice, the father doesn't just say to the younger son, all right, I will go ahead and give you your inheritance. The father actually follows through in essence on what the son is requesting. He says, I will die to myself in essence. I will act as though I just passed away and I will give away all my wealth. Your older brother will get his half, you will get your half. So the father takes a pretty bold move in this story. In fact, if anything, if we're starting to kind of put pieces together, we would say the father takes this willing act of laying himself down in self-sacrifice for a bigger understanding of life and the story. In essence, he gives his life to his selfish and kind of disrespectful son. 
In fact, in the original Greek language that the story is written in, that word wealth or money uh, is like a play on to the idea of life, livelihood, or living. The father gives away his life, his livelihood, his living for the sake of this selfish son. Now, the way this works in their culture is that the older son will get two-thirds of the estate, so he gets the ranch. The younger son here, he gets one-third, but he gets kind of the liquid assets. He gets the cash. So the older man gets the lion's share. The younger gets something he can immediately engage with and spend and use. Now, here's the thing I want you to note about this story so far. As the father dies to himself and gives all of his wealth away, all of his livelihood, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't lecture. He doesn't give a warning. He doesn't scold his son. He doesn't give a guilt trip. He doesn't say, one day you're going to come back and I'm going to say, I told you so. None of that is in the story. And he doesn't say to the son, you know what, okay, if we do this, uh, I'm dead to you, but you're dead to me. He doesn't do that either. There's nothing of that. The father just lays himself down and thinks probably to himself, life and consequence will do the heavy lifting. And so he lets him go. And the son wastes no time. It says, after a few days, the son left. He packed up all of his belongings and he moved to a distant land and there he wasted all of his money or again, living, livelihood, He wasted it on wild living. So the kid is living large, man. He's having a good time. He's partying it up. It's a great deal. And you know what? Living large is rad. It's fun, but it's also costly. And he keeps living large and living large and having a blast and partying it up and everything else. And then one day he looks at his cash app and it says zero. And he knows the party bus can no longer be paid for. And he has no new assets to come by, and so he's broke. Now sadly, about the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the field to feed the pigs, and the young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So this does not mean he started eating the pods of the pigs. No, he couldn't even do that. So he had zero. So we would look at this part of the story and say, ah, so this kid is now at rock bottom, as though rock bottom is the bottom. But it's not the bottom. In Jewish culture, there's rock bottom, and then there's like pig pits. And he's in pig pits. Because this is a Jewish story. And the Jewish culture looked at pigs in the exact same way I look at arugula or cats or light beer. Untouchable, man. You just don't mess with that, right? You just let it go. And so this kid is in a terrible spot. And it's amazing because you know what? When he was spinning his daddy's 401k, it was all good. Friends were a-flocking. But now that he has absolutely no money, he's penniless He's friendless, and he's hopeless, right? He's just literally starving to death. The only thing he has going for him is that he's not witless, not completely. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. 
I will go home to my father and I will say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as one of your hired servants. And so not only is he dead broke, he's almost ready to kind of like be dead, dead. He's dying on the spot. And so he has this moment of like, oh, wait, you know what? I remember there was this guy once, my dad, that I told to drop dead. This man that willingly gave his wealth to me, and I was reckless, but I remember his heart, his character, his tone. I remember that he didn't give me the lecture. Oh, yeah, that guy. Maybe, maybe I overplayed my hand. Maybe I missed what I had. Maybe I, I failed the situation. This father of mine that gave everything away to me as he died to himself. So he thinks, maybe I should go ask my dad for a job. Maybe that's the way forward. Now here's the problem. Go back to the beginning of the story. Did the father just give the wealth to the one son? No, he gave it to both. See, what happens sometimes when you're self-absorbed is you don't always think about the consequences of your decisions, right? That they affect other people. You're just thinking about yourself, right? So he's just thinking about himself. Dad dies to himself. Dad gives him his money. He splits and he forgets that dad divested himself of everything. Dad doesn't have a ranch in which he can give his son a job. Uh, but, but the son is not in that space, He's not thinking about that just yet. He hasn't penciled it all out. But here's the simple fact. The only thing the father has to offer the son is the father. That's all he's going to have in the end when the son shows up on the scene. But the kid doesn't understand this yet. Again, because consequence and everything, it hasn't all registered. So in verse 20, it says, He returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, I want us to stop right there, and I have a question. Actually, I have a couple of questions. Here's my first question for all of us. What is your conception of God? just you in your seat right now, when you think about God, what is your conception of him? Let me ask the question differently. Uh, what disposition do you think God has when he looks down on our planet? When he looks at the immoral, when he looks at the broken, when he looks at the addicted, when he looks at the foolish, when he looks at the destructive, when he looks at the hateful, when he looks at the prodigal humanity, what disposition do you think he has as he looks? When he sees us in our dark spaces, when he reads the thoughts of our minds, when he sees the things that we wouldn't want other people to know about, what do you think his disposition is toward us. See, I want us to get into that space a little bit because I, I want this story to inform our perspective, how we see him, and maybe even in that, how we are to act like he acts. Because here's the thing in the story so far. As the sun is coming onto the scene, there is no pensive gaze as the kid slinks up the front porch. There's no pause on the part of the father waiting for the son to spill his guts and beg for forgiveness. And there's certainly in the story no lecture. 
of, I told you so. Did you finally get it? We'll see how long this lasts. Oh, are you just here for more cash? Like, none of that is in the story. No, there's no shame. There's no wagging of the finger. There's no looking down the nose. There's no crossed arms of the father. No, we see a dad that is looking, wanting, longing, eager. He's scanning the horizon, right? Longing for this return. And in his heart, you don't see the sense of offense or bitterness or I want recompense for what this kid has done in my life and the burden he's brought me and the hurt and the anguish he's laid in my soul. None of that is there. Instead, here's this father and one day this sorry bag of bones comes up over the hillside, descends into the valley, comes toward the father's house. And what does the father do? This old dude grabs the hem of his robe, jerks it up between his legs, and begins to sprint toward his kid. Right? In their culture, it's totally undignified what he does. And as he rushes toward his son, he engulfs him. He crushes him in his grace. There he is, and it says he's kissing him and hugging him, and it's like this present tense. He isn't stopping the kissing, the hugging, the lavishing, the prodigal nature of this father to this son that this son does not deserve. The father's just all over him in love, all over him with compassion. It is one of the most powerful stories in the Bible. And here's what I want us to notice again. Notice that the son is yet to say a word. Right? This kid could be showing up saying, I'm broke, what you got? The father doesn't know why the kid's there. The father just knows the kid is there. That's what he knows. And he's stoked for it. He just knows his feelings. He doesn't know his son's motives. But he just knows his heart. It's the disposition of the father to forgive and to embrace even before there's remorse, right? Maybe there's something that is on the kid's face. We don't know. But the father's just rushing in and embracing deeply. And here's the cool thing about that in my thinking. The father's active doing that as opposed to waiting on the porch. That act of coming toward and embracing, that further melts the heart of his son. And and here's how I want to prove this to you. Notice it says in verse 21, as the son approaches, the father embraces, and then the son says to the father, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son did you see it because you shouldn't have seen it to see it you're like Matt speaks in riddles yeah remember how the son played it out in his head before oh, I'm starving these pigs have food I have no food I know what I'll do I'll go to my dad and I'll say dad I've sinned I was wrong I'm not worthy to be your son can I have a job? Can I get some extra work? I need some cash. In other words, he was coming with an agenda. He was coming and saying, I admit fault, but I have a need. I admit fault, but I also am looking for a little extra something to get me by. So it's an apology, 
but with a purpose behind it that is self-interested and self-feeding. But now that the father is just lavishing love upon his son, that last part just melts away. It just drifts off. The son never says, I need a job. He just needed embrace. He needed love. He needed home. That's what he finds with his father. It's amazing how reckless love can win over a stubborn, hardened, selfish heart. And so the son, what he gets is better than getting a job. He gets release. He's rid of this sense of shame and failure as he's embraced by his father's acceptance. Incredibly powerful. And what I love about the father is he doesn't do all of this and then say, come into the house and then say to himself, I'm going to give this a little while. I'm going to make sure it sticks. I'm going to make sure he means it this time. I'm going to make sure he's truly reformed himself before we get any further down the road. No, that's not what happens at all. The father's like, you're home. I love you. Let's have a hillbilly hoedown right now today. And so they get after it. It says in verse 22, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robes in the house and put them on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening up for a big party. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine. Right? Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father's like, what are you talking about? You're my kid. You're my son. You've always been worthy in my sight. You've always had value in my sight. No, this son of mine, he was dead, but now he's returned. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. Yeah, the younger son, he was lavish with his recklessness, but this father is lavish in his longing, lavish in his love, lavish in his compassion, and lavish with the celebration, even toward this wayward kid. Because this wayward kid is coming back into life and back into belonging. And I love it because this son has not proven his worth. He's just not. He doesn't have to. The father sees worth in his son because he's his son. That's worth enough. And so I probe with the question again, how do you see God? Like when you're praying or you think about like what he might look like on a throne someplace, just in your brain, is he stoic, stern, stodgy, serious? Or is he like this dad? Longing, seeking, finding, celebrating, because that's the image that Jesus is trying to paint for us when it comes to God the Father filled with love and compassion rushing in and pouring over. Imagine religion listening to the story about their Old Testament God. I'm sure they're like, duh, what? I'm sure it makes them incredibly uncomfortable. And it makes them uncomfortable, I think, for the same reason that it probably makes us uncomfortable to think about that kind of God or for me to teach this kind of disposition for God because we start to go, I don't know, that sounds too permissive. That sounds too accepting, too embracing, too easy, too bleeding hardish. It sounds like it's too much grace and not enough law. And, and, and here's what I thought about this weekend as, as I was putting all of this together. I thought, why do we have an aversion maybe even to this nuance and nature of God? And I realized because all of us have a little bit of that other son in us. 
we all have a little bit of the third prodigal in the story, the big brother, right? So here the party's underway. The DJ's got the beats thumping. He's working the, the, the tabletop, right? He's got a record just, and then suddenly, and that record screeches, and the music stops, and somebody starts a new song, and it's the March of the Empire from Star Wars, Bum, 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 bum. And the, like the, the head of the ethics department in the family shows up, right? And he's all about fairness. And fairness is now failing. And so he high steps into the story. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field working, right? Because that's what he does. He's a hardworking kid. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants, what is going on? Your brother, he's back. And your father has killed the fattened calf. And we are celebrating because of a safe return. But the older brother was angry. And he wouldn't go in. Now let's be clear. In all fairness, this older brother is right. He is right in all fairness. If fairness is your guide, here is the president of your club, right? Because that's how he's seeing this. He's looking at saying, the little brother pulled the trigger on this. He got his fair share, one third, and like a dipstick, he went and wasted it on everything. He got what he deserved. I, on the other hand, I got the other two thirds, this is my ranch, this is my stuff, and now my old man is taking like my Rolex, my Uggs, my tri-tips, doing a party, giving it to the kid, that dumb kid that wasted it on everything, and it's my stuff, my ranch, not fair. If this old man wants to be sentimental and gooey and a sap and a sucker, let him be, but not with my inheritance. Because the old man doesn't have anything the older son has stuff. The younger son burned, through, son burned through everything. But this isn't fair. This isn't right. And so the older son, standing on his moral, religious, ethical principles, is standing outside the party. So what happens? The father. The father came out and begged him. Here's what is so cool, I think, about this story. He is a prodigal dad to both of his prodigal sons. The one younger prodigal comes home, and he lavishes him with love. The older prodigal, arrogant, proud, judgmental, standing outside, and the father comes to him. He presses into him, and he doesn't lecture him. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't scold him. He's begging him. He's trying to give him a reason to come in, to understand, to embrace his brother in love. And so both of these brothers have different sins. Some people, like the younger brother, have the sin of kind of just being the prodigal when it comes to morality. Others are prodigals when it comes to self-righteousness and religion, and they cannot find love and compassion toward those who need it. So both of these sons are lost. But the father is the seeker and the finder. So he seeks out his older son and he finds him outside and he says, son, you want to let go of this life, man. You don't want to fight for fairness. 
You don't want to hold on to pride. You don't want to be judgmental. You don't want to have this whole contested thing between you and your brother. You don't want to suffer under moral superiority. If anything, you want to embrace grace because if you embrace the grace, it will free him, and in the process, it will free you. If you hold on to fairness, it will burn you to the ground. But if you embrace compassion and love and grace, you will come in and you will celebrate. But the son replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once I've refused to do a single thing that you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even a young goat for the feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering all your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. You've got to be kidding me. Are you insane? See, what's interesting is the father, in his grace, died to himself, right, and gave it all away. And the younger son slain by the grace of the father dies to himself and is embraced by the father in love but this older son no he's holding on to life he's not dying to himself he's holding on to fairness at all costs and he's discontent for it so you hear it in all of those little things he says I've slaved for you not I worked alongside you I learned from you I benefited from you. No, I was your slave, old man. And this is what I get for it. He says, moreover, I never disobeyed you. Right. You want to know how, how long his obedience lasted? The father comes out, come into the party. No way. Right? You just disobeyed 30 seconds ago, dude. Or this one, you never gave me anything except the ranch, you dipstick. You've got two-thirds. This is all yours, man. You're standing in the middle of everything your father gave to you, and you don't see it. And notice he doesn't say this brother of mine. It's this son of yours. So what you see is this disdain and detest for both the brother and the father. He detests the brother because he burned through all that cash, right? He was just looking for like hookers and molly and booze and just blowing money. He can't stand that. That's immoral. But he detests the father as well for taking that son back in and not holding him accountable for all of his stupid conduct. In other words, he's mad at the father because this father has been gullible, forgiving, inclusive, letting bygones be bygones and just showing compassion and grace. He just can't fathom this. But see, Jesus is trying to teach religion something about God. And so I'm sure religion is sitting there and they're hearing the story and they know they're the older son and Jesus wants to drive the point home how our father is like this father. And so he concludes the story in verse 31. The father says to the older son, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. Not like we could, we should, it would be nice. Wouldn't that be lofty? Wouldn't that be really the high road? He's like, no, there's absolutely no choice but to celebrate this day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now 
he's found. Notice the continued grace and tenderness of the Father, even in the face of the demands of fairness and the poison of self-righteous pride. Like, we don't see in the story where the older son says, Dad, you're right. We don't know. He may have stayed bitter in the story. But the Father keeps pressing in love and grace. He extends this to the self-righteous sinner as well as the self-consumed sinner because he seeks until he finds. That's his heart and that's his character. Now, as I was thinking about a way to wrap this particular talk up today, um, my middle child that I mentioned before, Emma, uh, a few years ago wrote a song and I was coming through the house because she writes a lot of songs and plays a lot and she was singing this song and I'm like, man, we have to really have you do that at church someday. That's a perfect fitting song for this theme right here in this story. And so right now, I just want to bring the worship team out. I want to bring out my daughter, Emma, as well. Um, like I said, she wrote this story, and, and I don't know all the nuance behind what kind of brought it together, but I think it captures the heart of God. I think it captures the essence of this message here. And so I want you just to, to sit, to listen, to read it on the screen, and see how it reveals God's heart to all of us as prodigals in a prodigal world. Though you walk through the valley of the shadows Though you walk where you were only hollow I will always guide you home and Though you feel that you were undeserving Of the grace that I'm so freely giving I will Watching every little thing come to me, child. My arms are open wide. Even when you abandoned things, I was holding up your broken wings. And I will always be right beside you. Holding
carry you into the storm No, I won't let you fall I will carry you to safer shores And I won't let you fall I will carry you into the storm No, I won't let you fall I will carry you to safer shores That is the essence of our God. Always seeking, longing, finding, celebrating. And as we're here gathered this morning or we're watching online or you watch later in the week or whatever else, we all kind of fall into one of these prodigal categories. And maybe we find that we're a little bit a mix of all, that maybe we're a prodigal in some ways where we have been reckless and yet God says, you're my kid, come home. And Maybe we've been a prodigal in which we're judgmental and kind of condescending of others that we see as prodigals and our father comes outside and says, come in and celebrate. Because what God seeks of all of us is to be a prodigal father like that father, like he is a father to us, where we love his grace, we love compassion, we love restoration, and we love to see people come home. And so right now I wanna go ahead and close this out with prayer. And then we'll have just a moment of worship. But, but I want us to kind of let that settle in. 
And for ourselves even to go to God and say, God, I know I've been distant here or I've been distant there, but I want to be close to you and more like you in what I do. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for beautiful, powerful, uncomfortable reminders of what your grace is all about and why it is so radical. And I know that in my own life, I'm a prodigal to the left and I'm a prodigal to the right. But I want to be more like you, Father God, a prodigal dad that is so compelled to move by your love for me that I would then move in grace and love for you. Help us to be like you and to care what you care about, to care deeply about those that you care about and that we would be like you. We thank you, Jesus, in your good name. Amen.